Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Infinite Worlds podcast. I'm your host, Winston Ward, publisher of Infinite Worlds magazine. As always, I'm joined by my co-host, Nick the Tooth. In this first part of our Matrix two-parter, we're going to talk about the first movie, get a little bit into what it did right versus its sequels. We're really looking forward to this one. Really been planning to do a Matrix episode for a long time since the fourth movie was announced. So I'm really excited for this one. Let's get into it. All right, brother. First podcast of 2022. We have uh, we have made it. We have escaped the madness of 2020 and really the continuation of it into 2021. And now it looks like we're still in it, you know, year three of madness. This is the third year of 2020. It just keeps going. It just keeps getting longer. What's really funny is we were recording an episode right around this time. I think it was the 5th of January last year. And we were talking about, oh, there's a light at the end of the tunnel now. And (laughs) it's going to be great to look forward to this year or whatever. And then by like, September, it was like my fall plans versus the, you know, the new variant, the whichever variant it was at the time. It's madness. I just don't. I was t- talking to my daughter today and, and uh, we were just chatting with FaceTime every morning and uh, she's in London and it's it's crazy over there, too. You know, it's like uh, people aren't going into work and, uh, you know, things aren't shut down, but it's ve- it's still people are wary and mm-hmm. it's hard not to be wary when just this is really for me, this is the first month where of the entire three year saga that uh, that uh, that almost everybody I know has COVID. I mean, or, or someone they know or someone they're living with. It's like it is truly gone f- crazy right now. And you know what? I'm going to interrupt that real quick. But my experience with it that everyone, I don't know about you, but everyone that I've talked to is uh, said, yeah, it's uh, it's it's not as heavy as like the first time they <laughs> yeah. got it. But they're like, but it's still no joke. It's right. still a very bad, bad sickness. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, I hate getting sick. My wife and I got sick right after the new year, she had quite a bit of time off for the holidays. And the morning she was Mm -hmm. finally supposed to go back to work. She woke up and she could hardly swallow. Her throat was so sore. And I was, I had been like sniffly and was sniffly too. And she missed the whole week of work, the entire last week of work. The test came back negative, but you know, there were like false negatives too. You know what I mean? Did you take PCR tests at all or is it all rapid uh, antigen tests? It was the mail-in tests. You know, they, uh, I, I, don't know the technical. Okay. They didn't get the results for like 40 hours. Or, you know, okay. Something. Yeah. The antigen, rapid antigen tests, I think, give a lot of false negatives. And people who have, uh, who eventually, you know, after three or four tests, they'll test positive, but, uh, but they just don't, uh, test for a while. So who knows, man? I just got tested also, man, because I got exposed to someone who has it pretty bad. This is the second time they've had it. And uh, they're vaccinated and uh, my buddy and he's like, it's a bad, he's got it bad and it's not going away. You well, know? The, the vaccinations do not seem to do anything about contracting it, you know, but it is. Yes. Yes. Yeah, it's not in his lungs and he's not going to the hospital or anything like that. So, and I think for unvaccinated, they say 90% of, uh, of people that are in the hospital right now are uh, are vaccinated or unvaccinated. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah. I was looking at the numbers today, and like the <sighs> there's a big spike right now going on, like all over the country. The Omicron 
like is at its peak. The current spike is the highest we've had, and this is going to be the worst part. Yeah, that's that's what I mean. Where anecdotally, I can say that I know more people right now that have it than at any other time. The graphs the CDC are putting out tell the same story for sure. And I still yeah. have never tested positive for it, but you can have it and be asymptomatic even now. So, you know, I feel like over the past two years, I probably have had it at some point, but you know, I am vaccinated. I still wear a mask just because. Yeah. Who wants to get sick? Yeah. Who wants to get sick? You know what <laughs> you I mean? Know? Even if it's just, the, even if it's just the flu or the cold. I think I said this before, but I can't imagine myself ever for the rest of my life getting on an airplane and not wearing a mask just because Absolutely even not. before the pandemic, I used to always get sick on planes. And once I started wearing a mask on a plane, I, I, I no longer got sick. So I'm like, Pfft. Better than getting a cold, you know, or whatever I would always get on a plane. So, yeah, it's crazy. Yeah. So anyways, my daughter got it and her uh, her husband, both of them vaccinated and he didn't have any real symptoms either. Just kind of a runny nose one day. And that was it. Like I was saying about my wife, she's still coughing, you know, a deep lung cough still. Wow. And it's been like 13 days. And she's still like, wow. it's, it's like keeping her. Up. I wonder if you guys tested again, if, if it would show that she she still got it. Yeah. How many tests did you guys take? Two, two different ones. She took two, okay. I took one, but it's still bad. And I got sick. I was definitely sick with something, you know I mean? I, I had like, you know, sore throat, was coughing, the whole deal. When she went to a nurse and the nurse was like, yeah, these are all COVID symptoms, but the test came back negative. Who the heck knows? But I will say this, my uh, uh, a friend, she's a nurse and her husband got it and uh, is quarantining and everything. And she gets tested every day and it took like four or five days for her to test positive. Nah. Even though she had symptoms, so you yeah, know, who knows? It could have been the timing. Who knows? Who knows? It's just it, yeah. it's just maddening because you now I just feel so powerless. Yeah, the idea that we can like all band together and you know you know get the vaccination rate high enough and like wear masks for long enough to stem the spread of it or whatever that is way in the rearview mirror now. No, and I and, and I agree. And at some point, you know, the uh, the sci-fi junkie, dystopian junkie is just thinking, oh, wow, this isn't going away. And guess what? It could freaking mutate next time. It will mutate again. Something that just, <laughs> no, but I'm saying next next time it mutates, which it, you're right, it absolutely will, that it'll, you know, mutate into uh, something that's just lethal. I'm yeah, like, lethal. Oh, like way I, more lethal. Way more, but we're going to cut right now, and I am going to give you a dystopian scenario of what I went through four weeks ago. Right. And the one of part of my thinking on this, which is how crazy I am with dystopia and all that shit, is I'm like, okay, if something happens and society collapses, I have got to get this fucking crazy ass surgery now before I can't get it. And so... I, uh, I'll, I'll go back. Um, when I was, when I was younger, man, my, I, my parents put me in, um, in every sport that there was, right. Because I was so freaking had so much energy and everything. And it was a way to be like, okay. And I was like a super right. nerdy computer kid used to program on freaking, uh, Apple twos and all that shit. But I also, they just put me in everything. And so I played football all the time and I even played in, uh, in high school, but I, when I was in my senior year, I started getting stingers, which are, do you know what a stinger is? Explain it. So when you like hurt your neck, you'll get like a lightning bolt that goes down your arm. Right. Okay. And so I used to get stingers my senior year down my left arm all the freaking time, every single practice. 
and uh, which is and I, and it's, of course, no one knew anything then. Everybody, you know, back in back then, no one knew anything about anything medical. It seems like you know what I mean. And so they were just like, "Yeah, keep going." And it was just it, what I what was happening is that I had damaged a disc in my neck, and so um, what the disc is. Think of every like throughout your cervical spine in your neck and your uh in your back and lumbar back is your lower but in in your spine you have these vertebrae and they're like bony vertebrae in between them so they can move you have basically a tide pod it looks like a long it's like laundry detergent right it's a little pod like your discs yeah it's a disc that disc is like a tide pod in the sense that it's just like a a gel capsule and if you what happens is it gets kind of dehydrated um but it also if you injure it then you can, it can bulge out into your spine or you can herniate it which is the worst which means you burst through the the lining of that disc and then it sh shoots out into the spinal canal pushes on it and pushes on a nerve which makes the uh that nerve just shoot electrically right and so there's just so much damage that, which is why I tell people, man, football is so fucking stupid between, um, between what you do with concussions and, um, and to your brain and what happens to your vertebrae. It's just the CET. a nightmare. Yeah. I mean, look how weird I am. Look how weird I am. You think it would be this weird <laughs> without like massive amounts of brain damage? Yeah. <laughs> Hey, man, at least you're not like pulling off your uniform in the end zone and throwing it to the crowd and storming uh, off the field. I didn't play long enough for, to get that kind of damage. <laughs> so anyways, um, fa you know, fast forward like seven, eight years ago, I uh, I got a stinger again. I was doing jujitsu and I jumped on someone's back and I spiked my head and I got a stinger down my left arm. And I was like, and I, it hit me. I was like, oh my gosh, that's exactly what used to happen all the time in uh in football and then i got believe it or not i got an iphone 7 and looking down all the time <laughs> at the phone dude it just started radiating and so i realized man mm. my neck is bad and uh and i went and got uh, an mri and they were like oh yeah your disc is herniated it looks like you've got damage to your neck for a while and so, you know, back then, which wasn't that long ago, but back then, the uh, the in America, the number one surgery, the, the go-to was fusion. And what they would do is they would take out that disc and they would put a bone like from a cadaver in there. And then they would uh, put a plate between the t over the top of both vertebrae and then they would screw them down and then your bones those vertebrae would heal into or grow into that bone that was in the middle and then you had like one big vertebrae okay where you used to have two uh, but the problem with that was that uh, within five six years you will have what's called the Jason disc syndrome most people do or many people do and because of the now the 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 responsibility of the discs above and below to move more where there was a movement there, um, those discs fail. And then those people have to get repetitive surgeries. And before you know it, your neck is just a, a broom handle, you know, where you can't turn and you can't, yeah, it's heavy, man. It's really heavy. And so I, I actually have a friend now who got fusion. I know two people that got fusion and like four years ago, and both of them think that they need another disc done. And so even then I was like, I'm not getting fusion. I read enough and, um, uh, and I saw that in Europe, what they were doing, and they had been doing for like the past 20 years, is they would take 
a widget, okay? And it would be, it's like a ceramic ball in the middle of two titanium plates, okay? And so that's a disc replacement surgery as opposed to fusion. And so I was like, well, if I'm going to get this, I'm going to get disc replacement. And so... Um, not fusion. Yeah, I was like, I'm I not- imagine flexibility in your neck is really important for you for jujitsu. I think. Yeah. Also, yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so I was, uh, so you know, just researching it. I was like, well, I'm not going to do it right now. And uh, I kind, I did a lot of traction. I learned great posture to keep my neck, you know, for everything. Even when I'm at the computer, I sit straight up. I'm kind of aggro about it because for you know that was the one thing that relieved the pressure on my on my nerves. And so, uh, so that was a benefit of it. But when we went to um, London um, in this last May, my neck started really, really freaking bothering me. I started having numbness. And once you have numbness, perpetual numbness in your hands, then Man. you're done. You have to get surgery immediately because as you damage that nerve, there was a, a fighter, um, Bosch Rutten. He was a uh, pancreas and MMA mm-hmm. fighter. Do you know who he is? And so he, oh yeah, yeah of, course. of course, right. He was one of the greats back in the day. And so I, I'm the open hand palm yeah. strike. So you know more about this than me. You're more of an MMA fan than I am, Winston. It's true. It's true. <laughs> I only really started watching uh, MMA when Dana was like, "Dude, come on, come freaking to a fight." When I moved back to the West Coast, so um, I before that I just never really watched. It. I was too much of a nerd. And, but anyway, so I met, I, I now know boss and I met boss and he did not get surgery for a long time and his arm withered dude to like a dinosaur arm Mm. because that nerve was so damaged. So what happened, he talked about it, I think, and about how he could barely curl like five pounds with that arm and then had to get surgery and try and, you know, hopefully that nerve over time will, you know, heal up. But it's, so I knew I immediately because of him that I needed to get surgery. So I went in and when I came back from, um, in September, when I came back from the UK, um, I went and got an MRI again and they were like, dude, you have four levels of, of damage to your neck. It is bad. And so, uh, you know, three levels where you, you need to get it. And they're like, but the problem is, is, you know, when I was going trying seven years ago to get disc replacement surgery in the United States, it was so novel that they would only do one level if you could find someone to do it, you know? And so now when I started researching it, they were like, well, in the United States, the FDA allows two levels, but not three. And I was like, well, I I need three levels. I don't want to go under the knife and get two levels here and then, you know, go wherever to Europe in a couple of years and do it again. And so this is crazy. My doctor was like, I was like, dude, just do three levels. Let's just do it. Who cares if it's FDA? You're a doctor. You can make the call. He's like, yeah, okay, let me look into it. Because it had been done like once or twice in the United States with three levels. And so this guy was like, okay, um, I, I'll, I'll ask the surgery center where we're going to do it. It was an outpatient place. If we can do it there. And he came back, he's like, no, it's too long of a surgery. They won't allow me to do it. You know, it could be four hour surgery and in an outpatient service or center that's too, too gnarly. And so, so on right. Monday I am ready to get freaking surgery. Okay. I am in it for two levels. I am in the freaking outpatient center. I'm in a gown, all that hospital gown. I've got an IV in my arm. 
they're like, okay, you're going in like an hour, hour and a half. You're ready. As soon as it's time, dude, I sat there and I'm so, I've never had surgery before. Right. So I'm sitting there. You can't drink water. I am parched. I'm like, dude, can I have some ice? And the anesthesiologist came in. He's like, no, you can't have anything. I'm like, dude. So I sat there until like three o'clock and I'm like going, oh my gosh, I'm dying here. Just get this surgery over. The nurse comes in and she goes, okay, you're going in 10 minutes. I'm like, okay, let's do this, you know? And, uh, then five, five minutes later, dude, the anesthesiologist comes in and he goes, that's it. You're not going. I'm like, what? And he's like, no, it's too late in the day. By the time you wake up, all this staff is going to be gone. Something happens. And he goes, and this is when mistakes happen. I'm not allowing it to happen. My surgeon was kind of pissed and blah, blah, blah. So I'm like, okay, you know, I'm going to go with the flow kind of guy. And so then I'm like, oh man, what am I going to do? And so he surgeon comes in he's like, listen, man, I'm sorry. You know, this happens, but he goes, listen, on Friday, I have an opening at dawn at, uh, at the hospital, you know, like an hour away. And I'm like, you want to do it? And I'm like, yeah, I do. So that the next morning I woke up and I'm like, oh my gosh, we're going to be doing it in a hospital, a real hospital. So I emailed them. I'm like, dude, let's do three levels. I know no one's ever done it. Uh, You know, very few people in the United States have done it. Let's just freaking do it, man. And uh, he's like, you know what? You're freaking right. (laughs) And so on Friday morning, man, at dawn, I'm in there, dude, they get a whole, now I'm in a hospital, thank goodness, you know, and they got a whole team in there, right? Right. Um, and, uh, and this time, dude, they gave me a catheter, all this because it was such a long surgery, you know, and, uh, they bring me in dude. And they, uh, they did three freaking levels, man. I am full on cyborg now, dude. I've got these widgets in my neck and, uh, it's, it's crazy. I'm almost at week four. I'm at Friday will be week four. So that's, that's my story. (laughs) I always come in with a story, don't I? Me and uh, everyone else are obviously all thrilled that you had a successful surgery. And I didn't die, right? I woke up. <laughs> or have any complications or anything like that. I've personally seen the photos of the hole on Nick's throat because they went in through your throat, right? Yes. Yeah. So anyway, the, the front of your neck. That's right. That's right. So they go, what they do is when they bring you, when they brought me in there, they cut and it is massive on my neck, right? It's like six to eight inches, whatever they go. Yeah. It's a big, I mean, it's, if you've got a weak stomach, don't try to find pictures. Of it. <laughs> so they go in and they like cut in my neck and, and unlike most uh, uh, cervical or artificial disc replacement surgeries, they only do like a two inch and it's horizontal. So it's in the crease of your neck. So you can't see it, but because they did so much work on my spine, what he did is he cut almost just vertical and just what they do is they get a device that pulls your throat or your neck apart. Okay. So they can, and moves the esophagus the th- and they move the rest of the neck and then they access all the way to the back of the spine. Right. And that's open. And then they go in there and they drill into each vertebrae, the top and the bottom that they're going to deal with. And then they vice that open and then they start digging out all the, the disc and then they, uh, and you can find videos of this, and then they start grinding down the vertebrae, all the bone spurs, right? And then they insert the disc and then they do it again and then they do it again. And there's all this grinding man and all this shit, dude. When I, bro, 
let me tell you something. When I, I don't remember obviously anything in the surgery and I hardly remember waking up. I only remember my surgeon like asking me like, dude, how are you? How are, how are you feeling? And I'm like, I am in, I remember just not, obviously my eyes were closed. I'm like, I am in so much fucking pain. <laughs> That's all I felt immediately. Despite all the drugs, despite everything, I was in so much fucking pain, Winston. I've never felt pain like that, man. And, uh, and, and so the next two days, dude, the next two days, I just didn't, I should have taken, I'm not a veteran of surgery. I should have stayed the night in the hospital is what I should have done or two nights. But I also, um, I should have taken more, more pain pills. I don't like pain pills, but I should have taken more to the point where I couldn't feel it, but I just couldn't get to the head of the pain. And it was a those two three days were a nightmare it reminded me of like some sci-fi horror movie where i was like trapped in some hell that's what i kept thinking of course my mind went to sci-fi and uh of course but but after you know and and after like uh like after i think day three or four the acute like pain of like feeling like a drill was going through my freaking skull um, and through my neck and everywhere went away. And then it just became like a dull ache. And uh, I think a lot of that dull ache was, and this is what's so crazy, is because the discs are compressed and that's what they're fixing and they vice them open. Dude, I'm an inch taller. No shit. Yeah. No, no shit. So, yeah. That's awesome. <laughs> I don't know about that. It's so Gattaca. I don't know if you've seen Gattaca, but <laughs> that's also on the list. I'm making. Oh, oh, it's one of my favorites. Dude, they can they can rebuild you stronger, I, faster. I know. That's what I'm saying. I'm so cyborg. But part of it is, you know, those ligaments and tendons are now so stretched that it. They're like, dude, you will have aches and pains for months, like a very, very, very severe ankle sprain. You know, where you will mm. feel this be, because right. li ligaments and tendons don't get that much blood. And so they just don't heal that quickly. That makes sense. Oh, uh, well, dude, <laughs> thank you for going through it. One, so that you're not paralyzed, but also it's super cool that we have a cyborg as a co-host. Right, right. You know, like, I mean, I, I think that's so, so fitting. I, Are you going to fight crime? Now? Oh, no shit, dude. I hopefully, man, but hopefully <laughs> between the freaking vaccines and this neck, I'm going to have superpowers. So I'm, I'm hoping they, it, you've already got 5g <laughs> compatibility i know, dude, I, know. You're okay. I hope so man i'm so freaking pumped anyways yeah that's my story this time i, I don't even know if i want to do any more episodes because i always have a crazier story i'm like what next what is next <laughs> because you're doing the podcast crazy shit just keeps oh. happening to you it's like it's like exponential yeah like the craziness has to be crazier than the last time because we're in a simulation that's why <laughs> My crazy is so much less crazy than yours, dude. Well, 2022 could be your year, though, bro. It could be your year of crazy. <laughs> you know, hopefully I'll get published this year. Exactly. Fingers crossed. Okay, so here we go. Let's talk about, uh, for which for me is uh, probably my favorite. I would have to say my favorite sci-fi film of all time is The Freaking Matrix because martial arts it's just, you know, I saw Tarantino talking about this and he was talking about his his favorite films and he's like, dude, The Matrix is right there, like up with, you know, top three ever. 
I'm like, yeah. I mean, it's a great choice for favorites. You know, it's not my favorite ever, but anybody putting it on their list, it makes perfect sense. It's a terrific movie. We're talking about 1999's The Matrix here because we're both of the popular opinion that the franchise sort of devolves quickly after the first movie. Like the sequels all shouldn't exist almost, you could say. Obviously, there are other people out there who disagree with that and like them. Obviously, your opinions are perfectly valid. But, you know, the popular opinion is that they're not that great. And I, having rewatched the entire original trilogy and the new film in the past month, yeah, I, I stand by that. Opinion. Yeah, I have trouble watching through the other movies. The first movie is really fun and really uh, easy to watch. And it kind of stops at the end of that. Yeah, that movie was just, I don't know. There was something about The Matrix that was just, you know, and, and I will tell you that my principal complaint, believe it or not, with the new film, as opposed to the first film, is that I'll just get it out of the way. What I, For me, the first film, the cinematography in that film, which is, you know, if you watch the best way to describe, I'm a, I'm a photographer. So, you know, for me, I'm always thinking about how a shot is framed. Right. And that's kind of how like a graphic novel, like a great graphic novels, every single frame is amazing. Right. Akira, you're like that artist is thinking, how can I draw this in a way that is really cinematic and really cool and very unique, not an expected angle. You know, that's what in art we're always looking for, something that's kind of like, whoa, that is dope. And so there's no question that visually speaking. It was certainly the most talked about movie that year. Yeah, well, I mean, that's just question. because of the visual effects. I'm just talking about the framing. I'm talking about like when you look at like the different shots. Like, remember when he gets in that like hearse car and they're bringing him to Morpheus and it's raining and they have that top down shot of all the rain like falling on the car. I mean, that is an unexpected and just they took time and it was like, dude, that's like a for me, like a great graphic artist who's thinking, you know, who's writing a graphic novel is or, or drawing a graphic novel. How can I frame this in a way that looks so freaking dope that conveys the tone and everything that's happening? And so the framing of that first movie alone outside of the visual effects. And I often tell people, if you want to see great freaking perfect framing of, of, uh, of any kind of shots, Stanley Kubrick, right? Number one. I mean, his in why? Because he's a photographer. He was a photographer, a professional photographer for life. And so he knew exactly what he was looking for. And he would make sure you watch like Clockwork Orange. Oh, my gosh. Or The Shining. Every shot is fucking beautiful, right? Yeah, they all look like posters. Yes, they all look. Every single shot looks like a poster. Or Wes Anderson, right? I just watched The French Dispatch. Every single shot in a Wes Anderson movie is perfect. That's why he's an auteur. That's why he's so great. And so The Matrix, the original movie, dude, the framing in that was amazing. And the latest movie, I felt like, I, I tried to explain it to people. I'm like, it felt like it was shot for television or Netflix or whatever because the framing was so bad. Just a fundamental aspect of taking the time to be creative on every single shot, which they did in The Matrix, they didn't do in this latest movie. And I was like, man, that sucks because it was so distracting for me. <laughs> Anyways, that's my friggin' rant on framing. No, 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 no. I think it's a good way to start because we're going to start with the development of the movie first. And I think that's a really good segue 
one of the reasons that the movie was so successful is because it was and and this is the original movie we're talking about with the wood yeah we're talking about the first yeah. movie yeah and okay so the cinematographer for this movie was a really well-known, uh, really respected cinematographer in the industry named Bill Pope. Mm-hmm. And his previous credits had been Sam Raimi's Army of Darkness, and he did Darkman as well. And both of those movies are not, you know, they're both kind of like B-movies. Mm-hmm. But if you watch Sam Raimi movies, that's another director you'll see that really cares a lot about the cinematics of his photography. Yeah. Creating interesting shots for people. Mm-hmm. So, you know, working with Sam Raimi means that you obviously know what you're doing. And then he definitely obviously exploded when he was the cinematographer on The Matrix. But he's also worked on like Spider-Man 2. It's Spider-Man 3, which is amazing, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, And Scott Pilgrim versus the World, which has incredible photography throughout. And and you know what? I think the framing on – he did Reloaded in Revolutions of Matrix. I thought it was great also. That wasn't my complaint with those movies. No, yeah, absolutely. Okay, so that's one of the people that you have to thank for the look of that movie. Mm Mm-hmm. Once they found backers for the movie, they hired Jeff Darrow, who is a um, well-known underground comic book artist. He has a really great series called Shaolin Cowboy, one called Hard Boiled. He worked with Mobius on some stuff back in the day, City of Fire, an incredible visual artist. And they put together a 600-page shot-by-shot storyboard for the entire film. Working with the Wachowskis, Jeff Darrow created the look of the film and another artist named Steve Scorse, who I actually don't know much about him, to be honest with you, but he's another respected artist. And so the shots were all planned ahead in the storyboard, shot by shot. Sometimes movies do that, but not always. You know, usually storyboards are more of a guide to how to film the movie than a uh, step-by-step. Yeah. I think they were in a position, my understanding was because they were so such novices as far as directors, they'd only done like Bound, right? Which was just kind of a an right. inexpensive thriller, you know, and now they were saying, hey, we have this idea and we want to film a high budget action movie. And they were like, well, you haven't done anything even close to that. And my understanding is they kind of had to do that to secure funding for it, right? You know, that absolutely makes sense to me. They were really new directors. After this movie, of course, you know, they kind of had like, for a while there, they had sort of carte blanche in Hollywood. They were able to just kind of make whatever movies they wanted. And it seems like they might have split up as a team because the newest movie was directed by just Lana herself. Yeah, but the brother was probably like saw the script and was like, I think I'm going to hold off on that. Maybe so. That might have also happened with Lawrence Fishburne and Hugo Weaving. Yeah. And they would work together again on V for Vendetta. Another great movie. Yeah, great movie. Okay, so another interesting thing about this movie when we're talking about the development is that, okay, the year before The Matrix came out, another movie came out that has a lot of really similar themes. Dark City. Yeah, I love that movie. And me too. I went and saw that movie in movie theaters. And I didn't watch The Matrix until, I don't know what, oh, I know, I actually do know what happened. My, not to ruin the mood of the episode, but my mom died, like, right when this movie was being released. She was really sick and everything, so going to the movies was not really on my agenda right at that point. So it was, like, maybe a year after this movie released that I saw it on video. Mm -hmm. Luckily, when I saw it on video, I saw it in, like, a really nice setup with surround sound and everything. Yeah. I had a pretty good experience. But at the time, people were telling me that it's a ripoff of Dark City. And I like Dark City a lot, so I kind of resented it at the time. And I carried that idea with me for a while, even though when I did eventually watch the movie, I was like, dude, this movie is 
awesome. <laughs> I don't care. This movie is so entertaining. It's so tight. The fight choreography is incredible. The whole bullet time. Oh my gosh. Where the character's perspective slows down and they're able to track the movement of things moving at like hyperspeed. All of that impressed the hell out of me. I was 16 or 17 when I saw it. Seriously, was totally blown away. It was earth shattering, dude. Those visual effects were like, what? But I still <laughs> thought for quite a while that the script had lifted from Dark City. And Dark City is a little different. The film Dark City, if you haven't seen it, is this city is kept in perpetual night because this race of aliens has come and taken this city full of people. And basically they're using them as guinea pigs, rearranging their memories and rearranging their positions in society every night to a new reality in order to find out what makes them human so that they can have eternal life. They're trying to figure out a cure for their mortality through humanity. Yeah, their race is like done. And so they're facing extinction and we have something they need, but they need to figure out what it is, right? In some ways, it is really similar to The Matrix. It's like waking up from that dream reality to discover that there's this far more terrifying reality in which you're being taken advantage of. And in that way, The Matrix is just like that. It's very much social commentary about being a working class person. We talked about this a lot earlier, how the machinations of society, those at the top are controlling everything. And no matter what you do, you're kind of stuck on their ride. Yeah. And also the Winston, it also lift, it also shared in common. I don't want to say lifted, but shared in common, the film noir, the very dark film noir sure. feel and tone of the movie. Absolutely. Although interpreted very differently yes, you know, yes. from movie to movie, but you're right. Absolutely. Okay. So when I saw the trailers for the matrix, you know, they're wearing all the long black trench coats, and the aliens in that movie are wearing long black trench coats yeah. too. So I had that association, but it turns out that I was wrong. They were developed completely independently of one another and they just happened to share the same thing, which there was a lot of that kind of angst in the 90s. I mean, there's probably even more of it now, yeah. but that angst was definitely beginning to develop a lot in the 90s. Yeah. And I mean, from an economic standpoint, if you look at the effects of Reaganism, you know, and trickle down theory, the middle class in America started to lose a greater and greater percentage of the, you know, sharing in the GDP that was created, the wealth that was created in this country. It's people right. started, you know, at least subconsciously saying, wait a minute, we're worse off now than we used to be. Right. So yeah, there, that resentment was rooted in real world, you know, effects. The two movies did obviously share, you know, a lot of themes, but like I say, they, it turns out one was not a rip of the other. The matrix had been in development for a year before dark city came out. It's sort of coincidental. Both great movies, though. Yeah. Honestly. So if you, if you haven't seen Dark City, definitely oh, check it out. Amazing. Okay. Here's another thing about the development that I think is pretty interesting. The cast were required. This is I'm reading this straight from Wikipedia. The cast were required to be able to understand and explain The Matrix. They brought in books of philosophy, including Simulacra and Simulation. And all of the books had to be able to read it and understand it. Out of Control, The New Biology of Machines, Social Systems, and the Economic World by Kevin Kelly. And they also had to understand Dylan Evans' ideas on evolutionary psychology before they were even allowed to open up the script. Wow. That's crazy. <laughs> that's heavy reading too, man, right? Yeah, that's, yeah, that's, not, that's not light reading. <laughs> it goes without saying that the cast of that movie had a lot of perspective before they started. And another little anecdotal thing is that apparently – before they cast the cast that they ended up with, they approached Will Smith about being Neo. 
And originally it was going to be Will Smith as Neo and Val Kimmer as Morpheus. Is that fucking nuts or what? <laughs> I, who knows how that would have looked and felt, but it might have worked, especially in the 90s. They were both extremely lovable individuals, so it might have worked. You know, Will Smith talked about that. He said that, uh, yeah, I don't think I would have ta- had the same take on Neo as Keanu did. I think he killed it. I just, I wouldn't have played it that way. You know, he, he's always such a funny kind of, you know, except maybe an iRobot. He was a little more, but still, even that cocky thing, you know. Sure. And like I said, I would have been interesting to see how it turned out, but he also said that he didn't quite understand the concept of the movie. Ah. Probably what happened is this. And again, guys, I, this is not scripture here. This is just me telling you my interpretation of what I'm reading, is that they tried to get Will Smith into it and they tried to explain the script to him. They gave him the script to read and he was like, I don't get it. I, I'm going to go do this other movie. He did Wild Wild West instead. Oh, that's right. Yeah. It's a lot worse of a movie, but <laughs> it was still a very successful movie. So, you yeah. know, whatever. He still made money. He wasn't going to get to write a hit single about the Matrix. Maybe that was it, right? <laughs> <laughs> but that may be why they forced the actors to read all of this supplementary material before they gave them the script. Because like, we want to make sure that you understand it and not pull a Will Smith and then we give you the script and you'd be like, I don't get it. Yeah. And I don't blame Will Smith. I'm not going to lie. It's a heady subject matter. And I also imagine in 1996, 1997, Will Smith had a lot of stuff on his plate, I would guess. Yeah. And you know, in all fairness, like again to him, like you're saying is that you also, most movies fail. It's almost impossible to make a great movie, right? Absolutely. And so he's probably looking at these directors and going, you've done nothing and you're trying to pull off a what? You know, with Joel Silver, it's like, "Ah, I think I'm going to skip. This thing sounds really weird, you know? Joel Silver decided to back it. Yeah. And because of it, we got a really terrific movie that I think of The Matrix's successes, of which there are quite a few. I think the thing that it does the very best is hit on the times. I hardly think a movie exists that represents the time it was made better than The Matrix does. What do you mean by that? By just the look, the style, the zeitgeist of thought of the late 90s, the right before the Y2K mm, took place. Yeah. The underlying anxiety of people, paranoia against corporate, you know, overlords or government overlords. And technological, you're right, you, Y2K. I forgot about that, yeah. Not only that, but costume design, the sound design, the cast, all of that had a real late 90s feel. And possibly it's the movie defining the era. But I really don't think it worked that way. Because there were a lot of other movies that this kind of like obviously drew a ton of inspiration from and built on as far as style. And like I say, I, I really don't think that a lot of movies out there really represent their era quite as well as this. I mean, of course, you know, you could go back and be like, The Graduate represents the 60s or whatever. Apocalypse Now represents the 70s or whichever one, you know, you think. But even all of those, you'd be like, well, you know, but okay, so let me ask you this. I'll ask the audience this. If you had to pick a movie that represented the late 90s, Tell me what your thoughts are. No, I think I think you're right. I think in light of the the Y2K and in light of, I mean, everybody I know loved The Matrix. Everybody I know has watched The Matrix so many friggin' times. It's it definitely defined. Uh, I I remember walking out of the movie theater and going, "What the fuck right. was that?" It felt like a bomb went off inside my head. It was one of the. You know, I I only remember walking out of a theater and feeling that when I was like, you know, seven or nine years old after Star Wars. I was like, what just happened? You know, 
my heart was beating walking out like, oh my gosh, I got to watch that again. Yeah, it was. I think you're right. Okay. Yeah. Like Star Wars for the seventies for the, the second half of the seventies. Yeah. That's how I feel about it. The late seventies. Yeah. And you know, what's, what's interesting and we've talked about this before is, you know, one of the cool things that the Wachowskis did that uh, very much like George Lucas and Tarantino, where they throw in their favorite aspects of movies, right? And they create the stew that is amazing. I mean, like George Lucas with the samurai and the World War II uh, dogfighting and Flash Gordon space opera you know, became Star Wars. Well, these guys loved Kung Fu and they loved this philosophy of, you know, the simulation and William Gibson and, you know, with the William Gibson noir, right. And sci-fi. I mean, really dark city took from that more to me, more than anything. They're both born from the same source material. And also with the simulacra stuff, obviously Philip K. Dick and Blade Runner obviously get thrown in there as well. Maybe even a little bit of total recall. Ah, yeah. Yeah. Speaking of the Hong Kong action martial arts stuff, that's another reason that the movie was so successful. It was one of the first American big budget action movies to use the wire foo technique that they had been using in Hong Kong movies for a little bit before that. That is to say the martial arts that they use wires on the actors to make it seem like the martial arts are able to defy the laws of physics as they fight. Yeah, it's so cool. You know, that revolving thing that they were doing that little tidbit that came from um, Michelle Gondry, who filmed, he's a director who filmed uh, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. He used that, I think, one of the first instances in like a vodka commercial. And it's kind of like where they're using like stop motion with like all these cameras all around somebody just shooting like photography cameras. And, uh, and then compiling it all together. And that was the first instance, I think, of that. And so really cool, man. So cutting edge. I just want to mention Yun Wu Ping, who was the martial arts choreographer for the movie, definitely deserves a ton of credit. And the actors had to train for months. <laughs> One of the best comments on here is that Yun became, he was optimistic at first, but then he began to worry because he realized how unfit all of the American actors were. Like how out of shape they all were. No way. Yes, that's a true story. But he's able to work with all of their strengths. Oh, this is really interesting here too. I think you'll find this interesting. Prior to pre-production, Keanu Reeves went a two-level fusion of his cervical spine due to spinal cord compression from a herniated disc. No way. Oh my gosh. Okay, now we definitely are in the Matrix. We are in a simulation for sure. Oh my gosh. If it didn't feel like that story tied in. Oh, right. <laughs> oh, I'm so glad you found that. That was freaking, what an Easter egg. That was awesome. The difference is that he didn't go cyborg. He went freaking fusion. Yeah, he went the, and I went the fusion. Yeah. Well, this was the 90s. Yeah. He went with what he could get. Obviously, he would have gone with the best thing possible, but you know, he yeah. was rich. Okay, here's another really interesting thing that is going to give us a little bit of that Matrix feel. Carrie Ann Moss performed most of her stunts herself and all of her wire stunts herself. Wow. The rooftop set that Trinity uses to escape from Agent Brown early in the film was left over from the production of Dark City. No way. No <laughs> way. <laughs> simulation. So, <laughs> is it simulation all day? That's what we're doing. You know, just highlighting how we're all in a Philip K. Dick book and we can't do anything about it. Okay, so the movie was a huge success. Even 
the uh, CGI stuff in the movie more or less holds up. I've watched it again pretty recently. Okay, hold on. I was talking about how 90s it felt. Well, here is a list of artists on the soundtrack. Romstein, Rage Against the Machine, Propellerheads, Ministry, Deftones, Monster Magnet, Rob Zombie, Marilyn Manson, and The Prodigy. Wow. That is as late 90s vibe as you could possibly get right there. I feel like I should go buy a pair of Jinkos right now just from having read that <laughs> list of names. Uh, tie my hair up in little, uh, little oh rubber bands. Gosh. Well, I mean, it's, it really goes to what you're talking about, though, with it being part of the zeitgeist, right? And Rage Against a Machine. I never thought about that. But obviously they put Rage Against a Machine in there, especially that last song, because that was like fueling them, right? Yeah. The Wachowskis were that type of people. You know, they were like wear wraparound shade, have their tongue pierced type. Not that I'm trying to put anybody into like boxes. And I know that does sound like that. And I apologize. But there was definitely like a style at the time, especially in the late 90s. And that, that's where yeah. they came from. I think one of the reasons that it works so well is because it, it's born out of, you know, their actual personalities. And I, I think that, you know, that gives it a little bit of like yeah. street cred in that way. A lot of street cred. Yeah. Guys, if you're enjoying the Infinite Worlds podcast, you could definitely check out more Infinite Worlds related stuff by visiting our website, infiniteworldsmagazine.com. There you can subscribe to Infinite Worlds magazine. It's a full color ad free science fiction magazine featuring stories, comics, and illustrations from creators all over the world. You can also sign up to our mailing list. You can follow us on Instagram at Infinite Worlds Magazine or on Twitter at IW Sci-Fi Mag. Also, you can find Nick the Tooth on Instagram at Nick the Tooth and follow his wild escapades. Theme song was written by Christopher Whitaker and our podcast is produced by Andrew Alonzo. 